Good afternoon, everyone, uh, and welcome. My name is Travis Evans. I'm the External Relations Manager for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, thank you all for coming, and thanks to those online that are watching right now. Uh, also, thank you to our conference and AV staff for setting all this up and all those that uh, work here in the Rayburn Building for helping that as well. Um, this is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled Risky Business, the Role of Armed Sales in U.S. Foreign Policy. Uh, but before we dig into uh, this important topic, I first want to bring your attention to a few things. Uh, you should have copies of a recent, a recent policy paper, uh, same title, it's not a coincidence. Um, there's also a two-page summary of the report for those that don't want to read the entire report. Um, <laughs> And there's also the bios of our panel of experts here, who I will introduce in just a moment. Uh, for those watching online, you can find hard copies of this material um, at our website, um, print them off there, or you can email externalaffairs at cato.org to request a copy, or if you have any other questions relating to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'd also encourage you to follow us on Twitter at CatoFP. Cato FP, that's the uh, defense and foreign policy handle. With last week's release of the Trump administration's U.S. controversial uh, conventional arms transfer policy, it seems a particularly opportune time to discuss the important but not oft-discussed topic of U.S. arms trade policy. So with that, let me introduce our experts. Trevor Thrall is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and an associate professor at George Mason's George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government. Trevor is also the co-author of a new book, uh, right here, U.S. Grand Strategy in the 21st Century, The Case for Restraint, which you can pick up at most bookstores, including that small one called Amazon.com. Uh, Caroline Dormany is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, where she works on issues pertaining to U.S. defense budget, defense politics and force structure. She's also an emerging expert with a forum on the arms trade. Trevor and Caroline are the two authors of the report that you guys have in front of you. And finally, Colby Goodman is the director of the Security Assistance Monitor where he leads research and analysis on US foreign security assistance around the world. Before joining Security Assistance Monitor, Mr. Goodman was the deputy director of the United Nations Office of Disarmament Affairs Regional Center based in Togo, Africa. Uh, we will have time for Q&A after the speakers give their remarks. Uh, so without further ado, let me welcome Trevor Thrall. Okay, yeah, as Travis mentioned, um, the arms trade is, is a topic that usually goes under or undiscussed in D.C., except when things go really wrong. Frankly, even when they go really wrong, I don't think it gets that much news. Um, many of you probably remember, though, at least one instance where things went wrong, and that was in 2014 uh, when ISIS uh, stole um, about three Iraqi divisions worth of U.S. military equipment, including... Uh, M1 tanks, anti-tank weapons, Humvees, other <clears throat> uh, uh, weapons, uh, hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammo, automatic w uh, rifles, so on and so forth. Um, you know, uh, 
which would eventually be weapons the United States and its uh, partners had to face on the battlefield in which ISIS used to take more territory to uh, oppress uh, the civilians and so on. Um, and how, how did this happen? You know, you ask yourself, and the sad fact is the United States transferred all these weapons to Iraq uh, after 2003, uh, and it did so uh, delivering them to a, a client, Iraq, who, um, you know, we, we knew wasn't particularly well-disciplined, well-trained, uh, there was a lot of corruption and so forth. And so th this is, you know, I, I think one of the more egregious examples of the potential negative consequences of arms sales, but it's really not, not nearly the only one. Um, the, the policy analysis, oops, sorry, where'd it go? There it is, sorry. Um, the, the analysis that Caroline Carol and I recently published uh, makes four basic arguments. We're going to cover them briefly today. Um, and the first is that the benefits of arms sales are smaller and less certain than most people generally imagine. The second is that arms sales have more negative consequences than people generally imagine. The third is to simply note that since 9-11, in particular, the United States has sold weapons to a lot of nations um, where the risk of negative consequences was relatively predictable and quite high. And the fourth, the sort of last takeaway argument is that the United States would actually benefit from reducing, not increasing, arms sales, uh, especially to these most risky customers. And so to, to today's order of battle, I'm going to talk about the strategic case sort of uh, against arms sales. Caroline's then going to come up and talk to you about some of the negative consequences and the risk assessment that we did as part of the policy analysis. And then Colby's going to share with you a treasure trove of data from the Security Assistance Monitor uh, database. So first, I think it's important <clears throat> to point out that um, arms sales are a really attractive tool of foreign policy for, for the United States. Since 9-11, the United States has sold over $200 billion worth of weapons to um, at least by our time of our counting, 167 different nations. Somebody here really likes selling, selling weapons. Um, as you probably know, maybe you know, um, the United States is the leading exporter of arms in the world um, with anywhere between a 33% market share, if you look at it from CIPRI's sort of military value calculation, all the way up to maybe as much as 80% of the global market share in terms of financial value of exports. And the reason <clears throat> we're number one is because the United States has used arms sales in pursuit of all kinds of foreign policy objectives, uh, in, uh, gaining access to military bases, trying to influence um, the uh, human rights policies abroad, trying to get nations to vote with us at the United Nations, trying to stop civil wars, trying to help countries win wars. Um, there's almost not a thing we've tried to do in foreign policy that we haven't tried to use arms sales to do. And some of the reasons for that are, I think, are, are relatively um, easy to see. Arm sales are, whoops, aha, um, very flexible. You can do them quickly. You can start them, stop them, increase them, decrease them. The president can do this relatively quickly without a new law, without, uh, you know, congressional approval, and so on. Um, it's also, of course, less risky than one of the main alternatives, which is sending troops somewhere. If you want to influence the outcome of a battle or uh, ensure deterrence or reassure an ally, you, you could send U.S. troops, but of course that risks putting U.S. troops in harm's way much safer to send weapons instead and say, you guys take care of it. And then finally, of course, it's also much cheaper than all of these things. And if, maybe if you do it right, you actually make money on the deal. So, um, you know, fast, flexible, cheap, less risky. It, it's really no wonder that the United States sells a lot of weapons uh, for its foreign policy. Uh, on top of that, um, 
I think people really do believe uh, that there are really some major benefits to be gained from arms sales. Uh, first, uh, the economic gains, and I'm going to leave those aside today, um, despite the fact that they obviously play a central role in, in the, the new arms policy. Um, and, because, and the reason for that is a couple. First of all, my, my own feeling from reading the literature on economic gains from arms sales is that they're pretty limited. Um, you might get some marginal benefit from, from arms sales economically, jobs and so on. But if you were going to pick a way to try to create jobs as the government, this wouldn't be the way you did it. Um, you have to subsidize uh, even being able to use arms sales with a very large defense budget to begin with. Um, if you wanted to create jobs, you could do it a lot of other ways. And the second, I think, more important reason is that um, I think given that the economic benefits are relatively marginal, um, especially, uh, arms sales really should be justified on their foreign policy uh, strategic case. And so the negative consequences are big enough uh, that I think we need to, to worry more about that than the economic case. So what, what is the strategic case? Sorry, not good with this PowerPoint stuff. Uh, the strategic case. Uh, against arms sales then, I think has sort of three pieces. And the first is that they're simply not very uh, necessary or useful for American security, like for as a direct impact on our security. We don't need to sell weapons to be secure. And that's obviously because we're just very fortunate. We, we live in a very safe neighborhood. We have two very friendly, weak neighbors. We have two very big oceans. We have the world's most vibrant economy, best military. Oh yeah, lots of nuclear weapons. Um, we don't need to sell arms to other countries to be secure in our own space, right? And even if you're worried about terrorism, you know, frankly, uh, I would say two things here. First of all, the actual threat of terrorism facing the United States is relatively small. Um, if you look at the number of people who die in the United States from Islamist-inspired terrorism every year since 9/11, it's you know roughly six. Uh, and moreover, all, all of those deaths pretty much are caused by people who live here. Um, arms sales are not going to reduce that number. Right? So, so not very useful there. And second, most of the things we like selling, uh, at least that are the focus, uh, I think, of the new arms sales policy in particular, uh, are things that are not very useful against uh, terrorism. F-35s are not going to stop a lot of terrorists, I don't think. So they're, they're not really that much value for our national security. So maybe you think they have benefits that are not specifically you know, security for us. And the two main things that people talk about are the ability to use them to generate leverage over other nations' behaviors and to help manage regional balances of power to promote stability around the world <coughs> and, and peace and so on. Unfortunately, uh, our review of the research and, and history on these points suggests that ne neither of them is a very good argument, actually, that the benefits we get these ways are, are much smaller than we, we might have thought. So on the case of leverage, um, uh, really, uh, here, first off, the number of cases where you can really need or use leverage is, is actually kind of limited. So first off, you, you can't use it against countries that, that just, you know, are either on our banned list that we don't sell to, uh, who are adversaries who, who don't want anything to do, us, uh, do with us. They're no good um, with countries who don't buy enough weapons to use them as leverage. So this sort of leaves you a small group of, of states where you could even sort of theoretically use arms as leverage. The second uh, piece there is that uh, in many cases, if you're trying to use arms sales as a carrot, right, hey, uh, we'll sell you arms and, and you give us access to a military base, um, you, you don't need arms sales for that. You could have just bought access to the base. There are other goodies the United States can dangle instead of arms to get most of these things. There are other cases where the United States uses arms sales uh, or the threat of uh, 
restricting ourselves as a stick, as a kind of a sanction. Um, and in this case, <clears throat> this, um, if you think about it, arms sales are sort of a weak version of an economic sanction. Right? But as I think most of us know from just even reading the newspaper, even robust multilateral UN-approved economic sanctions are, are not very effective most of the time and have all sorts of other unintended consequences that we tend to not like. Uh, and so as it turns out, the historical record of the United States trying to use arms sales as sanctions is poor. The Reagan administration actually tried this very explicitly. They got upset, uh, Congress got upset at uh, countries not voting with us in the United Nations. And so they decided to uh, go ahead and, and warn and threaten countries that we would restrict arms sales to you if you don't start voting with us more in the UN. Well, studies later revealed that there was no effect. It didn't, it didn't work at all. So the idea that we can use arms sales as leverage, sort of as a, just a general uh, thing, is, is really overblown. Maybe times when it can work, but as a general rule, it's not a very good argument. And then the last one is this notion that the United States can manage regional balances of power, especially in troubled uh, places, you know, like, well, let's say the Middle East, for example. And here, you know, this really uh, boils down to an assumption that the United States um, can predict the outcomes of arms sales. So, for example, we sell a good number of weapons to Saudi Arabia, and our assumption, our reasoning, is that that will help them deter Iran and help keep the Middle East stable. That's our assumption. But the, but the question you have to ask yourself is how good is the United States at really predicting the future here, especially when the United States is not the only actor involved. So we sell it to them for deterrence and defense, but what if that sparks a regional uh, arms race between them and Iran? What if it encourages hawks in Saudi Arabia to decide that military options are now preferable to diplomatic options? So you have interventions in Yemen. You have in boldness uh, in the part of the Saudis meddling in other places in the region, right? Uh, you don't know what the Russians are gonna start doing in terms of a, sort of an action-reaction cycle as they think about how to uh, pursue their interests in the region. And so I think if you look at, historically, the United States has sold weapons to NATO to deter the Soviet Union, and I would agree that after World War II, that did help keep things stable there. But I think if you look at what's happening today, the idea of selling weapons to Ukraine as somehow diffusing and managing peace in the region, it's probably not true anymore. And I think that there's uh, a lot less of an obvious path to regional stability through arms sales than we might have imagined in the past. So those are some of the arguments against. Had to be brief, I'm gonna turn it over to Caroline now to talk a little bit about the negative consequences. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you all for being here today. So the negative consequences that can accompany arms sales generally, they generate more woes than actual benefits in most cases. Um, and those unwanted outcomes come in three general types. The first are effects for the US. There are two options here that Trevor and I really see. The first is blowback. So when we sell weapons abroad and then they end up being used against us one way or another. So this could be like when we sold weapons to Somalia in the late 80s and early 90s, and then they were used against our own troops there in 1991. Or when we shipped weapons covertly to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan during the Reagan administration, we did that in order to counter Soviet influence, but those weapons were later sold to Iran and North Korea. The second option is entanglement. So that's when selling weapons to a country forces us to either take a side in a conflict or draws us in deeper to that conflict sometimes to the point of US military intervention. So this is like how arming Kurdish forces 
fighting ISIS in Syria has created problems with treaty uh, with Turkey, a treaty ally. Many advocates have asked if providing military aid to the Kurds means that we support their movement for independence, and then what would that mean for the countries currently claiming that territory? Second possibility, effects on the region. Armed sales can prolong and intensify conflicts. This is pretty straightforward. An influx of weapons changes the military balance in a conflict and tends to prolong and intensify that conflict, leading to more human suffering. This is especially a problem with small arms and light weapons that are used to wage ground invasions and insurgencies. Right now, Saudi Arabia is currently waging a war against Yemen, primarily using American-sourced weapons. KSA has been cited repeatedly for human rights violations and for targeting civilian populations. But the U.S. continues to provide not only weapon shipments, but also training and targeting assistance to the kingdom. There have been several attempts in Congress, both this year and last year, in order to block some of these sales. And they passed, you know, we had hoped that they would pass. There was optimistic, optimistic signs. Um, they came very close, but ultimately failed. The second possibility for effects on the region is dispersion. This one is very, very tricky. It's when weapons sold to a foreign government end up in the hands of an adversary. This typically happens in fragile states that are unprepared, unwilling, or unable to protect their stockpiles adequately. And this directly links back to the example that Trevor started with, with Iraq and ISIS. And the last possibility are effects on the regime. Warm sales have the possibility to enable problematic and corrupt regimes to continue human rights abuses and oppression of their people. For example, the U.S. sends a fair amount of weapons to the Mexican government and other South American countries to supply their police force and fight the war on drugs. Corrupt actors in those governments and those police forces then use those weapons in practices like forced disappearances. And unfortunately, it's not just the Trump administration that has shown this like sell, sell, sell mentality when it comes to arms sales. This is a map of all of our arms sales from 2002 to 2016. We've pretty much sold to everyone. And so we've exported everything from fighter jets, ships, um, very sophisticated missile defense technologies, all the way down to small arms and light weapons. There are some items that are restricted that we can't sell to anyone, and those have legislation acting against them. This includes F-22s, um, and for a long time that also included armed drones, although that policy actually looks to be relaxing. And that's you know, in an effort to protect our qualitative military edge. But how do you tell if a deal is going to lead to some of these negative consequences? Our paper, the one that you all have in your hands, develops a risk assessment framework based on factors that can contribute to these outcomes. So in order to gauge the probability of side effects, we created a data set of all 167 recipients of US weapons since 9-11. We also pulled their scores from the Fragile State Index, and we use that to gauge the stability of the regime. We use the Freedom in the World rankings and the State Department's own political terror scale to gauge how a regime treats its people. And lastly, we included the Global Terrorism Index scores and an armed conflict data set to gauge if a regime is involved in conflicts 
both internal and external, and if so, how extensively? So we had five measurements, and we wanted to keep this as simple as possible. So we graded each on a scale of one, two, or three, one being low risk, two being medium risk, three being high risk or red flag for each. So you end up with an overall scale of five to 15. That means that if a country scored low risk on all measures, they would score five all overall and qualify as lowest risk. These are typically NATO allies, and they don't pose a large risk of dispersion or blowback, but could possibly pose a risk of entanglement. At the other end of the spectrum, countries that scored highest risk, highest risk in all measures received a score of 15, and these represent the worst of the worst in terms of risky nations. These countries are where risks of every single negative consequence are high and where weapons will almost certainly be used in, in, pursuit, of counter, um, in pursuit of goals that are counter to U.S. policy interests. You'll note that the U.S. sold the most in terms of monetary value to this group with only five members, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Sudan. The countries in the middle offer a full range of potential consequences um, in terms of risks, and countries pose specific risks based on where they fall and what factors are high versus low. You know, it's, it's difficult because very clearly risky nations like Saudi Arabia can fall into these moderate risk categories. They're currently in the very risky category by grace of a stable government. Um, but they do also have high risk factors in terms of their actions in Yemen, and arms sales there could potentially support oppression of the people or further entangle the U.S. in conflicts. We discovered perhaps the most troubling finding of our research when we applied this risk assessment framework to America's existing list of embargoed nations. The 16 nations currently banned from buying American weapons had an average risk index score of 11.6, with 12 nations scoring a 10 or higher on our scale. The highest scoring nations were Syria, Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo again, with Iran, Eritrea, and the Central African Republic not far behind. But the United States sold weapons to several of these countries in the years immediately before then embargoing them when most of these risks were already apparent. Moreover, America's current customer list includes 32 countries with a risk index score above the average of those on our banned list. This troubling number reinforces the fact that the US government's current risk assessment framework is letting things slip through the cracks. Our paper questions the common assumptions that advocates use to justify these dangerous arms sales and proposes instead a new idea, that the U.S. might actually stand to gain from being a little bit more selective in who we're selling weapons to, the first of which we could produce fewer of these negative consequences around the world. The second is that we might stand to gain greater diplomatic flexibility by not arming one or, in some cases, both sides of an active conflict. In doing that, we could begin to act as more of an honest broker in the international community and take on more of a mediator role. And the third is that we might stand to gain greater moral authority, and that's provided by minimizing our own involvement in the arms trade. 
This, in particular, would allow us more room to advocate for nonproliferation. Late last week, the Trump administration released its updated guidance. And, you know, it reads pretty similar to the Obama administration's policy published in 2014 with a few very important differences. One of which is the explicit inclusion of economic consideration into the equation. There had always been a very strong case for the profit-driven side of arms sales from the defense industry. After all, arms sales do make changes to their bottom lines. But the Trump team has added several important phrases to a policy that normally hasn't changed much from administration to administration. This new key tenet that was added was that arms sales should explicitly increase economic security and create jobs. Now, profit, a factor that had been secondary to national security and foreign policy concerns, seems front and center in this new policy. And this is generally in keeping with Trump's own deal-oriented mindset. It's already very well within his existing brand. But it encourages a whole-of-government approach to pitching arms sales abroad. This change could effectively turn civil servants who had been acting as third-party brokers between foreign governments and American defense contractors into de facto salespeople. Luckily, though, Trump didn't strip out any of the language, language that includes humanitarian concerns within the existing guidance. So that remains a guiding light in American arms exports, at least on paper. But sometimes the burden of proof seems too high. Many in Congress had tried unsuccessfully to halt the flow of weapons to Saudi Arabia for their lax targeting and high civilian casualty rates. But under this new administration and this new policy, it's incredibly possible that increasing numbers of risky countries are going to get access to arms sales through the Trump administration. And I'm very happy to have Colby Goodman here to go into a little bit more detail on the Trump trends um, in American arms exports. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Well, um, again, my name is Colby Goodman, and I'm the director of the Security Systems Monitor Program at the Center for International Policy. And I'd like to just uh, say thanks again for Cato and Trevor and Caroline um, inviting me to speak today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so uh, a little bit about uh, Security Systems Monitor, and then I'm going to get into some of the data and focus on my uh, talk today. We'll talk about transparency. What's the state of transparency? Where are the gaps? And um, what, what, can, what can we improve? Um, so uh, Security Systems Monitor is a relatively new organization. Um, we're focused on increasing transparency and oversight of uh, security systems. So by security systems, I mean arms sales and um, military police aid. Um, we do, uh, we're well known for our databases. And what you see here is um, our four databases. Let's see if I can use this. Um, we have a database on security aid, on economic aid, arms sales, and military training. Um, and there's different sort of, and so a lot of what we do is support think tanks like Cato and academics and congressional staff to do assessments. Um, I think Caroline did a very good job explaining um, why we need external people doing these assessments, um, uh, in part because the, the, the economic push or the defense industry push to move the sales 
and sometimes the combatant command's push to move the sails are great. Um, and so extra pressure and, and extra analysis and oversight um, is sorely needed. Um, so uh, a little bit about the state of transparency. Uh, there's some really good news. Um, Congress, which has mostly been led by Congress, uh, a couple of years ago in the National Defense Authorization Act, there was a requirement for DOD to publish for the first time an annual congressional budget justification on security cooperation. That budget, or that CBJ, came out this year. Uh, it was great in the sense that it puts things together. It was still lacking and didn't quite follow all of the congressional requirements. But um, we, we're now seeing very good detail on a lot of DOD counterterrorism and counter-narcotics and counter-WMD. Um, and I'm going to show you just a little bit of that really quickly. So if you go into our security aid dashboard and um, you select filter, and let's look at um, 16, and you can select the program. So um, this the main new DOD uh, training equip program is section 333. Something wrong here. Great. So, um, in the past, it was the Defense Department that was the problem. We couldn't see what they were providing. Um, the state the Defense Department was sort of in. Uh, had been doing security assistance for a long time, but you know, about uh, 15 plus years ago, the defense environment has come in stronger. In many cases, is providing more um, amount and dollar amount aid than the State Department. So um, this is actually sort of released today. So um, you're the first person to see it. Um, get excited! No. <laughs> um, but what what you can actually see is uh, you know the amount of um, DOD aid through this, pro through this program, um, and there is a lot. And if you look at one of the, sort of the big trends, if you look at uh, FY15 to FY19, there's a huge influx of uh, counterterrorism aid to Africa. Um, in some countries, it's over 110 billion. Chad, um, Niger, um, over 110 billion. Uh, uh, Somalia, Cameroon, uh, um, Kenya, it's, we're, we're looking at over 200 billion. So compare that to, the, to their national defense budget and you sort of get a sense of the magnitude and, and also the risk as well. So um, uh, the other, other um, positive uh, thing to highlight on transparency is we're getting much more detail on congressional notifications on arms sales. So in the past, we, when the Defense Department published a notification on foreign military sales, they did it right away. But when the State Department published a notification for direct commercial sales, we would get the information three months later, and we wouldn't get all the information. But in working with Congress, particularly the House, we've been able to get um, the amount of, of the deal, the, the quantity or the, the type of uh, arm, and the country. 
And that's helped us produce uh, trend reports on sort of analyzing the difference between Trump and Obama. Um, so what are the gaps? Because there are still some big ones. Um, and the, the key, there's a couple reports that are really useful. Um, uh, Trevor and Caroline used um, our database, but they also, we, it was based on um, State Department, Defense Department, and uh, uh, annual reports. And these reports are useful in the sense that they provide the, the quantity of uh, arms provided to a country and, and dollar amount to, to um, uh, per sort of like category of uh, program. So State Department versus Defense Department. Um, those reports are valuable at the moment, but they're missing some key components. So the big one is we don't, we don't uh, um, actually, let me, let me back up here a little bit. Uh, the, the key things we need in terms of doing, our, uh, we being the royal weed, um, need for um, risk assessments and evaluating the effectiveness of security aid are four things. We need to know the recipient. We need to know the type and quantity of equipment. We need to know the dollar amount. And we also need to know a little bit of like what's the goals and purpose. Um, and then for some, some things, we, it needs to be timely. We can't, uh, getting information a year or two years later is not really helpful if we're talking about proposed uh, arm sales three months to four months, it's too, way too late. So, um, so with that in mind, um, one of the challenges with the annual uh, reports on arm sales is we don't have delivery data. We don't have uh, categories of weapons. So Defense Department published their report. We, we just have the total amount per country. No information on the type of, of arm. Um, State Department, on the direct commercial sales, we do have some categorization, um, but we don't, know, we don't know the amount per categorization. And it's just these super broad categories. And these, this is relevant because different weapon systems have different risks. Um, you know, there's been a lot of research that have identified that firearms and munitions and helicopters um, and certain military aircraft are much more risky than, say, like body armor or other types of things. Um, so, if with that added information, it's 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 more it's more possible to, to sort of determine the challenges. Um, the other. Um, the other, the other sort of major gap that, that we're seeing that we've spent some time looking into is trying to calculate counterterrorism aid. So uh, we have been working with Stimson Center on a, on a, on a bigger report to, to, can we even figure out how much counterterrorism spending um, we provide per year? Um, we've, of course, focused more on the, on the foreign aid aspect of it. Um, but uh, it's clear that we don't know. Um, where there's some good data, State Department in their congressional budget justifications put out uh, good information and, and, um, on the amount of counterterrorism aid for law enforcement, but for military, it's almost as if it doesn't exist in some ways in terms of like categorizing it. Um, the Defense Department likewise provides some detail, um, but uh, in terms of categorizing, but, but does not do a good job. And so without that information, how are we supposed to assess whether it's working or whether it's going for the right purposes. Um, so anyway, a big challenge. Within counterterrorism aid, uh, oddly enough, the big problem now is the State Department. So peacekeeping aid, and I'll show, a little, show you a little bit. Um, uh, oops, 
um, is uh, is basically uh, for most part a black hole. So um, we can often, uh, with the Defense Department now, see country level spending, um, but with um, with, with uh, the peacekeeping account, we, we often don't have, here, sorry. Um, we often don't have the total amount going to a country. So in fact, if you look at Somalia, Somalia is the, one of the largest recipients, but this money is, is not just going to the Somalian National Forces, it's going to Kenya, all the, the troop contributing, um, all the peacekeepers that are, so Kenya, Burundi, Ethiopia, and the State Department just doesn't, detail that, not even Congress in some cases can, can get that information. I've been going back and forth with CRS about how can we get this information? And they're like, I don't know. The data that we have that goes into detail is actually from Defense Department. And they're, in the notifications that I show you, they sort of like backtrack. It's, it's a major problem. So in the uh, most re in the markup that I think that happened this morning, there was efforts to try to, um, well, some small efforts to try to improve the transparency on, on peacekeeping. But I don't think it goes enough. There's there's a there's a lot of challenge. Um, the the one of the other things that I'm we're particularly concerned about peacekeeping is, um, you know, there there are there's a lot of corruption in in the peacekeeping selection and process. You know, we consistent we've done some uh, investigative research in Togo where um, we interviewed about a hundred uh, uh, Togolese soldiers that were either on their way or had been in peacekeeping missions, and dozens were retired um, and unfit for duty based on UN principles. So um, the other sort of one of the big challenges is the the uh, the move uh, the dispersion of of departments that are overseeing arms sales. So it used to just be the State Department and Defense Department, but now we have the Commerce Department. So in itself, that's not necessarily bad, but um, there is there are ton you know some estimates thirty to forty thousand equipment types of, of arms have moved from the State Department oversight over the Commerce Department, including potentially firearms um, very soon, and there's no annual report on exports of commerce items. Um, the State Department also produces a very useful end-use report. It sort of looks at what are the risks, what are the types of problems we're, we're identifying with trafficking, what are the, what are the specific types of things. Um, commerce does in-use monitoring, but there's no report. Um, so this is a challenge. Uh, the, other, the, other, the thing I'll leave you with is that um, we're really excited about uh, uh, the House um, supporting more transparency on congressional notifications, but this is continually um, uh, uh, pressured by the defense industry to, to, to leave out that the dollar amount. And so I think it's really important to try to um, codify that so that we ensure that that transparency um, stays. So thank you.